0: Around a third of Australia's population was born overseas. Many married and de facto couples have at least one person from another country. So what happens if they separate in Australia? Welcome to the Separation Guide podcast. I'm Kate Russell, and in this episode, I'll be learning about immigration, separation and family law in Australia. Both of my parents were born overseas, as was my husband. We also got married overseas. And this is a very common story. Over half of us have at least one parent from another country. We're a culturally and linguistically diverse nation. And this means we have culturally and linguistically diverse marriages, partnerships and families. Australian couples have diverse values and ideas about marriage and family structure and about communication and discussing their relationship and about seeking help. International partnerships can also have added layers of emotional and legal complexity if English isn't a first language and if one person is on a spousal sponsorship visa. Joining me today is our network member, Eva Yang. Eva is the principal at Starlight Legal, a Sydney law firm that focuses on servicing the Australian Chinese community. Eva has over 10 years' experience specialising in migration and family law in often complex and sensitive matters. She deals with property settlements involving trust properties, business interests, corporate shares and offshore assets. She also works on children-related issues, including sole parenting, international relocation and extended families or grandparents' rights. Eva's passion is to advocate for migrants who found themselves trapped in family law issues in Australia. I began with the basics and asked Eva if a marriage is recognised under Australian law when the wedding took place overseas.
1: Obviously, many people living in Australia were from overseas originally, and sometimes they married overseas. And yes, once you're married, you're married. So... Even if you're married overseas, your marriage is recognized under the Australian
0: law. And I know that in birth, deaths, and marriages, you can you can register your marriage here, but that doesn't, doesn't make any difference. If you want to get a divorce, whether you've registered your marriage in Australia or not, you still have to go through the same process. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's right. It doesn't matter. You don't need to register your marriage in Australia. Well whether or not you're going to divorce. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. Once you're married, your marriage certificate um, from the overseas can be used in Australia. Normally it will uh you, you need to do a public notary process so that you can use your overseas marriage certificate in Australia formally. And what is that process, Eva? It's a public notary process. That's a process that you have your foreign documents recognised by the Foreign Affairs Department. So you can use your foreign documents such
0: as marriage certificate in Australia formally. Okay, so that's an extra step that people might have to go yes. through.
1: Yes, that's correct. Like for example, when you come into Australia and you want to apply for the partner visa, then one of the essential documents is obviously your marriage certificate. hmm so what you need to do is you you do a public notary version of your foreign marriage certificate and you submit that to the department for the application
0: purpose. I see. So it's the same process if you're actually going to go through the family courts and, and divorce. Well, yeah. So if you do get divorced in Australia and – you were married overseas, does that mean that your country of origin recognises that you're divorced?
1: The other countries you should recognise your status as divorced.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it really depends on which country that you're talking about. I believe for China and India, your divorce is recognised. Okay. Well, for the same process apply, you need to do a public notary in relation to your Australian divorce certificate or the divorce order right. so that you can use that certificate in other countries for our legal purpose.
0: So anyone who has been married overseas, they should mm-hmm. always check if they do go back to their country of origin about how that country recognises the status of their divorce.
1: Well, yes. Uh, well, the, I think the best way is, is if you are divorced, you do a public notary process in relation to the final divorce order. Mm -hmm. So you can can use that document when you need to prove to to, to people in overseas or prove to the authorities in overseas that you are actually divorced
0: in Australia. If a couple separates and one person actually goes back to their home country before the divorce is finalised, can that divorce still happen in Australia and progress without the second party here? The
1: Family Law Court in Australia, do have a jurisdiction if one of the parties to the marriage is residing in Australia? So if it's just one party that leaves Australia and goes overseas, the Family Court still have the jurisdiction and the divorce can be finalised in Australia. And you can also lodge an application for divorce in Australia. Right. The best way is to obviously get a lawyer to uh, help you with the process because the lawyer will communicate with the court if there is any problem or if there is a document
0: that you need to show. And is that something that you find in your practice happens regularly, or is it quite unusual for that to happen?
1: Well, I've been helping migrants in Australia for the past ten years, so it does happen quite regularly because. Even during the time of um, separation, people often want to go back to their original country to spend time with their families. So when they departed Australia, they appointed me as their legal representative and I finalised the divorce application for them. And if there is a need for parenting
0: or property proceedings, that can also be done when they are overseas. Okay, so the person who's gone overseas has a legal representative in Australia. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, okay, yeah. And you just mentioned parenting. And I, I just wondered what is the incidence of separated parents who want to take children overseas. And, and what is the law around that when one party is staying in Australia and one party wants to relocate?
1: Oh, you can always make a relocation application to the family court and um as part of the parenting arrangement in relation to the child. Mm-hmm. It's always depends on what the court thinks is in the best interest of the child. A relocation order, it's a difficult one because if the child has been living in Australia for many years, usually a judge or a family court would be very hesitant to remove a child from Australia, as you can understand. Yeah. Yeah, and, and for the parent that does not want that to happen, does not want the child to go to overseas or relocate to overseas, the the parents in Australia may want to seek injunction order from the court to refrain the other party removing the child to overseas. But, and they can on top of that, they can apply for an airport watch list Right. They prevent the child from leaving over leaving Australia to overseas. So, or well, that's a way to make sure that the child um,
0: remains in Australia during the parenting proceeding. Is is um is a parent relocating the child without permission something you've seen happen in the past? Well,
1: uh, it's rarely happened. Basically, it would amount to a one parent kidnapping kidnapping the child. Uh huh. So that's very serious, and uh, well, that, that 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 does not often happen. Even if it a child has been relocated to another state without the other parent's consent, then the a parent that's not consenting to the child relocating to another state of Australia can apply to the court and ask for the child to
0: relocate to back to where he was originally living. Right. So anyone who has children in a relationship really needs to understand that they don't just have the right to up and go if if Thank they you. want to yeah and it's even though even though they were born overseas their children's right is to stay in their own country of origin
1: well, well, yes, it, it really depends on what's the best interest of the child. For example, if they're, if, they're, if it's in the interest of the child to go overseas to spend time with their uh, grandparents, mm-hmm. they may also consider that there's no risk of, a, of one parent taking the child to overseas and not coming back forever, then the judge may
0: still allow overseas travel. Right, okay. But overseas travel on holiday and overseas relocation are kind of two different things, aren't they? They are.
1: Yeah. You can ask for different um, court orders They'd be made in relation to those
0: purposes. But you still need permission to go on an overseas trip as a yeah. holiday? During the parenting proceedings, if the both parties agree, then
1: you can take the child to overseas travel. If, if an order hasn't been made in relation to overseas travel, then yes, you do need to have a proper order in place before you take the
0: child to go overseas. So get everything sign, signed and sealed before making those kind of decisions. That's correct. What if you've married an Australian citizen? How long does it take between getting married and, and being eligible for applying for permanent residency? What's the time frame? Once you're married, you
1: can apply for a partner visa to stay in Australia. Mm. The partner visa has two stages. It has a temporary stage and then you move on to a permanent stage visa. You, you, you need to be on a temporary visa for about two, three years before you can be switched to a permanent visa. So, well, it's a, lot, it's a very long process for many of the applicants to finally have the PR in Australia during the marriage. So they often need to wait
0: for four or five years to finally get a PR. If you're in that waiting period, um, so you're married, but you're still on that temporary stage, what happens if a couple separates during that time period? What happens to the status of that spousal visa or the status of the person who is not an Australian citizen?
1: The way our migration law structure the the visa program is the Australian citizen provides a sponsorship for the overseas person during this whole visa application process. So if the relationship breaks down, then naturally the sponsor needs to withdraw their sponsorship and that basically means you will not get um, your permanent visa granted at the end and your visa will be cancelled. So and you
0: have to you leave see, the country? <laughs> you have to leave the country. Yeah, wow. And, and what if there are children in the relationship? That's the exception. Okay. So if
1: you, you have an exception, um, such as that you have a children in a the relationship, then it doesn't matter that your partner canceled the sponsorship. It doesn't matter that your relationship broke down you can still continue with your visa application because you're under an exception that you can still be granted permanent residency because you have a children of the relationship. And another exception is domestic violence. Ah. So if, you have, if you have children and you suffer domestic violence and it causes the breakdown of the relationship, you can get a permanent residency at the end. And even if you don't have a children, but you suffered domestic violence and the domestic violence caused the breakdown of the relationship, you may also get the
0: permanent residency and you can remain living in Australia. Right. That's really important to know, isn't it? Um, Do you think that there are many incidences of perhaps one party holding that spousal visa over a partner who wants to separate? And and is that recognised as a form of family violence?
1: Um just just because the relationship breakdown and canceling the sponsorship itself does not mean it's a it's a violence among the other party. Mm. but if a party threatening the other, the foreign person about canceling the sponsorship mm. during the relationship. That may amount to domestic violence. Of course, it all depends on the circumstances. Of course. You, you need to show what's the what's the nature of the conversation, whether it's just part of the normal breakdown or is a threat.
0: If there's some kind of coercive control or something happening along oh, with, yeah.
1: Along, along with probably financial control. Yeah. Many of my clients believe that the sponsorship law actually caused a power imbalance in their relationship, Mm. especially when there is already power imbalance caused by the uh, unbalanced economic power between parties. The sponsorship system just worsens the situation and causes another layer of power imbalance between the relationships because even when the sponsor is not threatening was this person about cancelling sponsorship? It is just human nature for a foreign, a foreign person to 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 think or believe that the sponsorship itself is an added value to the foreign person when 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 he or he or she is trying to settle down in
0: Australia. Uh, it sounds like uh, people feel that they're in a in a more vulnerable position when they're under a sponsorship visa than if they were here under a different. They
1: are they would they would often describe that as part as a it's one of the many sacrifices they made for mm. settling down in Australia. Many uh migrants well, when they experience such imbalance in their relationship, you can feel that they are vulnerable, vulnerable because settling down in Australia is the most important thing to them for their in, in their lives. So that's, many of them don't even want to discuss this issue with their friends or family and not to not, not mention to seek independent legal help.
0: Hmm. That's um, really taking me into the next thing I, I want to talk about with you, which is the, perhaps the perception of divorce in other cultures or perception of that position of vulnerability. Is there a stigma about talking about that? And might that be a blocker for some people to perhaps proceed with the separation because of that vulnerable position?
1: That's that's actually right. That's a very correct observation. And many people w- w- will be very hesitant to go through divorce and separation because of the cultural stigma. And well, when one, when they finally make up their mind to seek help and get divorced, it's often when they already suffered the violence,
0: domestic violence caused by the other party. So they're not just choosing to separate because their marriage is not uh, happy or they're they're not being fulfilled. It's actually something that's gone a lot further than that that's pushing them to a separation.
1: Yes, they are, they 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 often experience um, the the violence before they finally make the decision to go down the divorce path, which I think is not right because migrants need to understand that they do have um, the equal recognition in the family court of Australia. So they should this definitely discuss with their friends and families about the situation, about um, the, the, the unhappiness during the marriage relationship. And if they want to get divorced, they probably need to consider seeking independent legal advice about their visa status, whether it's it's, it's still the path they want to pursue and remaining living in Australia or whether they want to go back to overseas, but to finalise their property matters in Australia or parenting matter in Australia
0: when they're overseas because they do have the option. To go home and then have someone like you representing them here.
1: Correct. So they don't need to feel that they must endure the pressure from the other side and remain in Australia until they have the final status as a PR in Australia. They don't need, they do have to, they, they always have the option to, to, to leave um, and to protect their rights even when they are in overseas. And I particularly want to discuss about um, the parenting case in this, in this situation. A much more difficult de- decision would be for parents to decide whether to leave their children in Australia or not when they are migrant and they don't have a visa to remain in Australia and they are going through the separation, but they do have children. So a much more difficult decision would be whether they should leave the country, which will will probably mean that they will see less of their children. Well, in such a situation, they obviously should talk to a migration lawyer such as myself about how to still get a, a visa, to leave or or, or visit Australia so that they can spend time with their Australian children or even they should consider apply for a parent visa so they can still have the PR at the end and live in Australia near to their children or with their children.
0: Wow. It sounds like there's there's so much complexity around this and and there are rules that that do protect people, but if someone going through this hasn't sought that professional advice, they might be just making decisions blind, really, or failing to act on something because they're afraid. Do you think that's the case?
1: Yes that's absolutely right because they don't see the full picture and they don't they don't know there are other legal options such as a parent visa so they can still remain in Australia or live in Australia without the sponsorship for a partner visa when they, when they do have children and that's very important.
0: Do you think there's a stigma about seeking professional help about your marriage or perhaps sharing information with people outside uh, someone's cultural circle?
1: I think given the confidentiality nature of our advice, nowadays it's less and less of people afraid to, to seek legal advice uh, because we, we were definitely not discussing about their situations with or with their friends or families without their specific permission. mm mm-hmm. They don't talk to their families and friends, but right. I nowadays people do have better legal sense and they do um they do call up to lawyers or send inquiries
0: to lawyers about their situations a lot more than than the past. Okay. Well that's good. So they're reaching out for that professional advice, but perhaps not talking not talking to the people who are in their lives about it. Yes, that's what I think. Eva, you represent a lot of people from the Chinese-Australian community. How do you make sure that your clients' cultural values are considered by the family court in Australia?
1: When people are discussing their parenting or property issues, they must must discuss what's the best interest in their values. So I think that's something that's very important and should be recognised by the court. Because what's the best for one person may not be what's the best for another. And especially when we're talking about the parenting case, when there is the children involved, the court should always consider what's in the best interest of a Chinese-Australian child compared to the other child. So what I'm saying is, yes, what we are doing is we're trying to present to the judges in the Family Court of Australia what's their cultural value and what they usually do in, in, in the Chinese family and how that impacts on the children's value and how that benefits the children when they grow up. Because for children, it's, it's, it's a very important part for children that they understand their family heritage and and children naturally share the same value with
0: their parents. And that's very important. Family court needs to consider that imposing an, an Australian value system upon a different cultural family is not necessarily in the best interest of that family or of those children.
1: Yes, if it's not necessarily in the best interest of their children's, the children's parents, then we may also say that the same, it's not in the best interest for the child because you cannot discuss a child's best interest without
0: discussing the children's parents' best interests. What about the children's grandparents? I know that you help people with grandparents' rights as well. What kind of rights do grandparents perhaps have in a, in a Chinese cultural setting that the family court might not consider in Australia?
1: First of all, I would like to comment that in the Chinese culture, the grandparents often much more involved in the parenting of children. And secondly, the Australian court gives too much right to the parents of the children and does not give enough weight to the importance of the grandparents' relationship with the children but but that's not that's not right in the Chinese culture because in Chinese culture the grandparents often have a much more meaningful relationship with the children and it's often in the Chinese family Chinese cultural family that the Grandparents are actually the one um, taking care of the children every day in the everyday life. Mm. When the children is like growing up, until, until the children can actually like grow up to ten, or before the children is turning, turning to ten, it's often in the Chinese family that it was the grandparents are taking care of the children.
0: And is that an example where? Those cultural values of of your clients need to be considered by the courts. That's that's right. That's exactly
1: right. And uh, it was a sad story that uh, a a child lost his mother when he was only four, and and what happened was that the the um the maternal grandparents want more time and to care for the children, mm-hmm. but it was rejected by the family court.
0: Mm.
1: We, we tried our best to fight for the maternal grandparents, right? And we do believe that in the future, the grandparents should have the right to spend more time with, their cho- with the children, especially when there is uh, one p- a parent
0: missing from the family. And I suppose that's an issue. It doesn't only affect people from, from a Chinese cultural background. That's something that is universal. I believe so. Yeah. I have a very practical question now. What happens when clients don't speak English as their first language or perhaps don't speak English at all? How does that impact the practicalities around drafting uh, consent orders and submitting to the court? Yes, I think that
1: amounts to part of the power imbalance between the relationship because we do live in an English country in Australia and when one party does not speak the language at all, Obviously, that party needs extra help. The same law applies in in terms of protection of the person's rights. So what's most important is for the non-English speaking person to have the correct legal advice and to fully understand their rights under the Family Law Act. And they need to understand that when they sign a document, that legal document means something. For example, when they entering a binding financial agreement, if they just sign an agreement without understanding the meaning of the agreement and without understand the advantage and disadvantage of signing such document and without understanding the legal consequence of signing such a document, it may cause a problem and then it goes against their interest in the future. There is a famous um, High Court case in 2017, the Kennedy case. The Kennedy case was about an overseas wife Mm -hmm. who came to Australia and signed a binding financial agreement just four days before the marriage. And at the end, the High Court ruled that the binding financial agreement is not valid, must be set aside because the overseas person, being the wife, did not understand. Acted against the legal advice given to her when she signed the binding financial agreement, giving up her financial
0: interest. But that case had to go all the way to the high court.
1: Yes, and as you can imagine, it cost uh, a huge amount of legal fees for this was
0: this person um, to eventually get back what she was entitled to. So that is a massive escalation through family court up to the high court. Yes. And obviously we would like to avoid escalation as much as possible. So what is your advice, Eva, on how someone who perhaps doesn't have English as a first language, what should they do to ensure that they understand what is written in that documentation and they understand the repercussions of signing that?
1: I think understanding the document and the taking precaution is just the first step. And unfortunately, I don't have a solution for those people to to better protect themselves in mm-hmm. such a situation because even when they have the proper advice, they will think, well, what does that have to do with me because I'm just going to sign that piece of a document anyway so that I can remain in Australia and remain in this relationship. So it's coming back to that kind of vulnerable position. A very common problem that migrants have is they've been forced into signing a binding financial agreement before they can be sponsored for a, a partner visa. And I think that's very common. Well, I can't say forced. Sometimes the parties mutually agree to, to have their assets being separated from each other so they can move on with the partner visa sponsorship and helping um, the foreign person to get the legal status. But in some cases, the person may be forced into such a situation. And we, we do act for people in cases that, State at the court to set aside those fighting financial agreements that was signed under duress when you are being sponsored by an Australian citizen or pr for the permanent residency in australia
0: mm, so that's a scenario you see I'm coming back to the power yeah. imbalance and the vulnerability of someone so if if in the past you have signed such a such financial
1: agreement don't feel that you do not have an option. You still have option. You should go and talk to a lawyer about what happened when you signed the Biden financial agreement and you didn't really agree to it. And then you do have the option to... To uh, to go to go to the court and set aside the fighting financial agreement and fight for what you 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 are entitled to. Before go to court, they can also engage a lawyer in the mediation to discuss those fighting financial agreement that you entered into, but you did not really agree to. So for well, even a few years down the relationship, if you still feel bad about this had happened, I think what you should do is to engage a lawyer. And to enter into a mediation with the other party and have an open discussion about this, and if the parties are mutually agree, then that binding financial agreement can be or can be terminated, and it will you can have a new one to replace the old one. Okay,
0: so there are avenues people can go down that don't require
1: court dates. Yes, we can have a better binding financial agreement in place if you feel upset by the first
0: one that you enter into. Hmm. And is that in the case of, of separation or do you see that with people who are actually still married?
1: Well, that can happen for people still in a marriage relationship. I think it's quite valid for people to, um, to make an effort to stay in a marriage. So that's why it's very important to actually undertake a mediation with the other party and
0: talk about the first fighting financial agreement that you're not really comfortable with people don't like to talk about money in Australia that much anyway. Do you think there are issues from other cultures of of it being even more something you might not talk about, you know, even with your spouse?
1: Well, if the parties are coming from unbalanced economic power background, then it, I think it's, it's natural for one party to hide their assets from the other. But... Everybody knows that if 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 the matter goes to the court, then you have to make the full and frank disclosure. Mm. So I, I think uh, people should have uh, full and frank disclosure
0: during the marriage. I know that it does not happen. Mm. Well, actually, Eva, you just said everybody knows that, but yeah. I don't think everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> you know that and I know that, but I think a lot of people don't realise that if they do go down the path of separation, that full and frank disclosure is required. Correct, yes. But nevertheless, I think our people should have open
1: discussions if they do want to maintain their relationship, maintain a, a good and healthy relationship and not going down to, to a set path. Maybe the, the appropriate thing to do is to have an open discussion and involve a lawyer in yeah. the initial discussion with the other party so i think that would help them
0: to have a good start of the relationship and keep going yes because immigration and getting permanent residency it adds that whole legal layer on top of on top of a marriage which obviously also you know has legal repercussions for anyone who gets married but there's mm. so many more layers so i i Absolutely uh, agree that getting some legal advice is very important. Um, Eva, you are fluent in Mandarin? Yes, I'm fluent in Mandarin and Cantonese. So obviously you can be of immense help to people from the Chinese Australian community. Do you think it's really important for people to seek out someone who is from their own cultural community when they're seeking legal representation? I think it is important for people to feel comfortable when
1: they're talking to a lawyer. So overseas migrants, they may not feel as comfortable when they're talking in a second language, in their second language in English and communicating to English um, lawyers. And if that's the case, then they should often seek help from a lawyer that speaks their native language so they can feel more comfortable when they are
0: expressing themselves, I think that's important. yeah, and to make sure that they understand one hundred percent. make sure that they understand yes. Mm. And do you often see people using interpreters with um, especially with the family law? Yes, I do. Often, often migrants, they want uh, to, to use interpreter.
1: Um, when Obviously, when they're communicating with, uh, with, with lawyers and they're not speaking that language, they use an, an interpreter. But what I'm concerned about is um, the interpreter don't have the legal knowledge. And sometimes when an interpreter doing the legal translation, it may not be correct. I'm not saying that it happens all the time, but
0: it happens quite often. So having someone who speaks the same language as you and also has the legal knowledge is the ideal situation. That's
1: correct because we can make sure that the correct message passed on to the client and the client can understand their legal rights. Whereas when people are using interpreters, because the interpreter may not understand on what the legal advice was about, and when they do the interpretation, it can cause
0: misunderstanding. And I suppose the interpreter doesn't know what is the most important part of that information, or the the one, the thing that they really need to concept check with their client that they understand, whereas the lawyer will. Yes, and it
1: also get misinterpreted, and that's what we say that it lost in translation.
0: Yeah. So. What do you find that people from other cultures and countries value when they're seeking legal representation? I think the most
1: important thing they value is that the, the lawyer is providing ethical otherwise, not to, to just make financial gains for the lawyer, and they want to understand that the lawyer also understands their real needs instead of just assisting with their legal proceedings. The lawyers understand their real interest. And if, the, if there is a way to, to achieve a better outcome for the client avoiding
0: costly legal proceedings, that's, that's what the, the, the client wants their way to do. So we're looking for that cost transparency, best interests of the client at heart.
1: Yes, because the people have many different interests. We can say that there are the real interests of a person in comparison to a legal interest of a person. When we're talking about the legal interest, it's what a, pe- a person can get under all these laws mm. or under the, the protection of the law, what a, a person legally entitled to, that's their legal interest. But, the, but that may not be the real interest of a person because like uh, what we just discussed, if for a migrant, what, what he or she wanted the most is to have the status, the legal status to remain in Australia, then he may
0: act against their legal interest to achieve that goal. So really understanding what the goals of your client are. Correct. Outside just the, what what can you get out of this situation?
1: Yes. So Mm. I think understanding the value of your client and understanding the real interest of your client or having a conversation with your client about what they can achieve and what options they have, it's very important to arrive in the
0: correct strategic legal plan. That was Eva Liang from Starlight Legal. Dealing with cultural expectations and having concerns about visa status in a separation on top of everything else that needs to be dealt with might put some people off moving forward and starting a new, happier life. We can put you in touch with a lawyer with specialist experience like Eva, who will understand your situation and help you navigate through. There's also a link in our show notes to help you understand a bit more about forms of family violence and visa abuse. If you'd like to learn more about your options in separation or if you want to be put in touch with professionals to help guide you through, please go to the separationguide.com.au and complete our three-minute interactive Q&A or check out our other podcasts and blogs. If you have found the information today useful, please subscribe, share and leave us a review. It's a great way to help our podcast reach others going through separation. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Separation Guide acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Torres Strait Strait Islander peoples peoples today. today.